Good morning. I, uh, I just just barely made it. Just in the nick of the sermon. Uh, you know, most of you know we have another uh, service. Our early service is at Lula Lake, and we had uh, it's a communion Sunday, and we were bursting at the seams, so it took a little longer. But uh, I'm glad to be with you guys. Um, we are uh, <clears throat> we're going to uh, continue this week talking about this strange thing called the resurrection. Uh, the resurrection, the whole Easter thing, which if you're not from around here, happened last week. Uh, and it's a time that we celebrate the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. Um, in the church, in the historic church calendar, this celebration lasts like, not, not like for most of us, where it lasts one day and we don't remember it the next Monday. The celebration in the church calendar lasts 50 days. So you're supposed to basically party for 50 days. So we have a little surprise for you if you look. No, we don't really. Sorry. It's just me. Uh, but I did, there's one writer whom I like, and he says, uh, you know, it's a big deal, guys. This, the, the resurrection and celebrating, it's our thing. It's, 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 it's huge. You should uh, go to your prayer meeting during the week and have mimosas, which I think would be a great idea if we had mimosas here. Did we get that, Clara? Clara's on maternity leave. She doesn't do those things right now. So... Uh, I had a prayer meeting this week, and I did not bring mimosas. I was really sad, and I almost brought donuts, and then I didn't. But I, I feel like I failed the resurrection celebration. <laughs> but we're going to continue because uh, because it is a big deal. Because it, uh, as Peter says in this passage, it is the um, the living hope that counters all of our various trials. So, would you please pray with me as we jump into God's word, Heavenly Father? Uh, we need you to send your spirit and enlighten us. We need this hope in our lives. We need to know that our sadnesses are not the end of the story, and our losses are not all there is. Please come and speak to us. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see, we pray. Amen. I've been uh, enjoying, lately, I think Hollywood has cranked out a number of really good space movies. And not like the weird space movies with aliens and stuff that's, that lots of people don't like. I still like those space movies. But the space movies are a little more accessible to other people that are just a little bit science fiction because they just have a little bit of technology that's not quite here yet or something like that. They're a little more accessible and they're a lot of fun. And, and one of the better ones in the last number of years was a movie called Gravity. And Sandra Bullock stars in that movie. She won Best Actress, I believe, for it. Uh, and it is great. It's basically her in space. And you wouldn't think that would be that compelling of a movie, but then they made it again with Matt Damon, and they called it The Martian. <laughs> Astounding. And that was a really good one, too. So Sandra Bullock is a, uh, is a, is a new astronaut. She's on her first spacewalk. Um, she's flown in the shuttle up to a satellite, and it's her job to repair and improve and upgrade this satellite. And so she's a really good scientist, but not that great of an astronaut. You can tell she's very nervous during her first spacewalk, and she's you know, breathing heavily and kind of getting a little seasick from the disorientation of uh, zero gravity. And, uh, and she's, she's out there, and she's, she's kind of buckled into her harness and, and, and onto the station. She's secure, but then they get her this, uh, this emergency report that uh, a satellite 
has been exploded on purpose, but all the pieces were supposed to fall to the ground. It was the Russians. But instead, they come circling around the earth, staying in orbit at like this massive rate. It's always the Russians. I don't know why. I think Hollywood needs a new villain. But the Russians messed it up. They're sending debris, uh, spinning around the earth like at the speed of a bullet uh, because there's nothing in space to slow it down, right? There's no friction to slow it down. So it comes hurtling around, right, heading right towards uh, Sandra Bullock and her crew. And, uh, and that, that debris rips through their shuttle, just rips it to shreds. And, uh, and, and uh, Sandra Bullock remains unhurt. But, but what does happen is her tether that keeps her attached to, um, to her workstation. It keeps her attached to the structure. It keeps her attached to where all the other astronauts are attached to. Her tether gets severed. And there's this terrifying scene. And they actually, it goes for a while where she is just spinning because she can't stop herself, right? You can't wave your arms and like get balance in space. There's nothing, there's no air current. There's nothing you can do. She's just spinning and you see the globe, the, the earth pass in front of her helmet again and again as she's just spinning hurtling off into the void of space. And it keeps going and going. And you know there is nothing that is going to help her. There's no way. Probably everybody else is dead. I'm going to ruin this part for you. She gets rescued by, uh, by one of the astronauts. But her whole point, obviously, at that point, is to get back to Earth. And so after that kind of moment with the tether as a, as a, as a viewer... I'm, I was, the whole movie, just anxious, like, keep your tether. Like, keep it, keep it connected. Because there's some point she's going from one station to, station to another, trying to find a, an escape pod that will get her back safely to Earth. And so there's certain points she's got to untether and just rely on, like, these big, clumsy fingers and spaceman gloves that they can't grab on anything. That's all she's got to, like, grab the structure and hold on. And any time she comes untethered, my heart rate goes up. It was a tough... It was a terrifying kind of thrill ride. It was a really fun movie. But what Peter is telling us here is as you face various trials, like if your spaceship gets wrecked by Russian improperly exploded debris, then you're going to need a tether. Peter is going to tell us, he's telling us in this passage, what is your tether? He's giving us a strong tether that will lead us home, that will take us home. He starts out from the outset, Peter, acknowledging that we're in many ways uh, like Sandra Bullock's character in that movie. He starts out in one of the most theologically charged greetings in, in, a, in a New Testament book. He, sa- he addresses the readers as the elect exiles. Elect exiles. And all that means is uh, it's, it's a, um, a reference to God's people who were in God's land and then were conquered by foreign nations and forced out of their home and to live in other places away from their friends and family, away from God's place and God's temple. He's calling us homeless right at the outset. He's he's saying, I'm going to acknowledge something about your existence in this world. You are homeless people. You feel homeless. Why is that such a big deal? You know, the first time um, that I ever really felt that was when I moved away to college for my first semester. And I, I, uh, I ended up sleeping so much 
because I, was, I didn't know what to do with myself. Nobody's telling me to be at class. I don't have any friends. I eat at weird hours. Like, and I just like, well, I guess I'll just sleep. And I, I could I like wake up in the middle of the night and not be able to go back to sleep because I had slept so much that day. I think they call that depression. Not sure. But I remember after being there for a couple months, a few months, and my first trip back to Nashville, where I'm from, my first trip back to my, my parents' home, and I walked in, and actually, like, even just approaching, I just had this sigh of relief, like, oh, roads that I know. I know where I am in relation to other things here. I, un- I know this place. I know this area. And then I go home, and I sit, on, sit in my parents' living room, and I feel that I'm sitting on a couch, like tears. This is so much better than a dorm bed. This is wonderful. And I talk to people who are not my age. I talk to adults, and I talk to people younger than me, and I interacted with folks other than teenagers. It was, it was great. And, and I had a, a conversation with uh, my brother that didn't start out, hey, what's your name? Where are you from? Okay, what dorm are you living in? Back then we said, where do you stay? I don't know, that was just how you said it at UT. I don't know if it was like that other places. Where do you stay? Um, Because cool and tough, right? As men, that's what we're supposed to be. So I had this conversation that wasn't anything like that because I could just jump in because I knew him. He knew me. I I was known in this place. I was home. I was safe. I I fit there. I had a role there. And Peter in this is acknowledging, listen, you're actually not going to experience that very much. I think some of us need to come to grips with that. You can't put that burden on your spouse or on your roommates or on your parents. You're supposed to feel lonely. That's part of this life. Not being known fully. No one will ever fully know your insides. And setting it up like that, Peter acknowledges not, uh, that, that, that this life is a tough place, that where we are is really hard. But if he sets it up like that, you know he's got to come with the, you know, with the left hook. He's got to bring something strong here. And he does. He brings something really strong. He has this big, great and in there that, that makes this transition. And... One day, you're going to go to this place, this whole other realm, where it's like not a physical place, and it's mostly made out of clouds and like vague light with no source. And there's this harp that you have that you can strum. That's actually not what he says at all. Peter talks about our hope, but it's not in those terms at all that we think of when we think of what our future holds. Most of us think of our future as this non-physical place where we sit around on clouds and strum harps or we just do some vague thing like sing praise songs all the time. You know, I don't know what it's going to be like, but I know it's not, it's not non-physical. It's not sitting on clouds. We know enough to know that. And if you have that hope, then you're certainly not going to get through a homeless life well. You're certainly not going to live well in a homeless existence. What he does say is this exclamation. Blessed be our God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, who has given us a living hope. It's just, 
this shout almost. You can, you can sense it when you read it. It just comes out of them. Blessed be and praise be to God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Who has, given us a, who has given us a living hope. He said he gives us hope. Now, I believe that you are probably a whole lot like me in this. I'm going to go ahead and assume it without asking any questions, which is not typically a good relational tactic. But I'm going to do it anyways. When you feel lonely, when you feel homeless, when you feel like a misfit and misunderstood and unwanted, do you want... Hope, or do you want a solution? Do you want it to end, or do you want to just know that something one day will happen good? I want it to end. This is not what I wanted Peter to say when he acknowledged that I'm homeless. I didn't want him to go here. I wanted something a lot better and a lot uh, and more immediate. But Peter doesn't give us that. You know he uh, he doesn't he doesn't. Um, he doesn't say, God doesn't give us that. God doesn't say, I'm ending all suffering and sorrow and loss right now, right here. <clears throat> There's no explanation given in this passage, because that's not what this passage is about. But briefly, you really only have two options when it comes to this. It comes to this, this why, why do I have sorrow and loss? Why do I uh, feel like a misfit? Why do things not work like they're supposed to work? You can either... You can either say, I've got a God who is good, who is on his throne, who is powerful, and who, and who likes me a lot. His intentions towards me are always good. And I don't understand them all the way. I don't understand that. But he's got a good plan, and he's working it out. That is not intellectually satisfying. As answers go in this day and age, that's, that's not a very good one, according to the world. It's not an intellectual satisfying answer. Your other, your other choice? Maybe there's a God, but if there is, he's certainly not good because of all this pain I see around me. Or he's certainly not in control because of all this sorrow and loss. And probably he's not there in the first place. And so, everything in life is a spinning into the void, heading towards nothing but chaos and death. Those are your two choices, chaos and death, or a good God you don't understand. Peter moves on from there. He moves on and says what you actually need in this life is hope. You need living hope. Living hope. Now, each of us, everybody lives by hope. Did you know this? All of us live almost wholly based on hope. Why else would you go to the dentist ever? The most miserable place. On, there's, like this mountain is basically heaven, but there is a dental office on it, so I cannot consider it such. <laughs> Dr. Wadlington is awesome. He's great, but I hate going to see him. I hate when I have to see him. You, you experience all this pain, right? It's, complete, it's terribly uncomfortable. Terribly uncomfortable. And you, you undergo various trials, like Peter says, at the dentist's office, because you have this hope that in the future that's actually going to be good, and I'm going to keep getting to eat whatever it is you like to eat. I'm going to keep my teeth. They're not going to rot out of my head. You undergo pain now for some future that you believe will be there. All of us live by hope. 
All of us live by hope. Maybe it's your paycheck. I think one day in the future, paychecks won't work the way they work. Right now, you, you get them like every two weeks. So on that Monday, when you're two weeks away from your paycheck, you're living by hope. I'm going to do this job, and then, and, and then in the future, I'm going to make, they're going to give me money, and I'll, have, and I'll be able to live on that money. You're working for something right now that you aren't compensated for until the future. Right? One day, there's going to be a little ticker in your computer screen or maybe like on your phone, and it's just every time you're at work, it's just going to go up like dollar signs and that's going to go like direct it's going to trickle into your account because you're worth like i don't know 450 every 10 minutes or it's going to refresh and then you won't live by hope anymore but for now you live by hope with your paycheck you live by hope <clears throat> maybe your hope is in the american economy it's strong i'm going to have a job i'm going to be okay i'm going to make sure i'm okay maybe your hope is in the vacation that's coming up. I will make it through this trial now because I know my vacation is coming up. I know that in the summertime I go away for a whole week. Or I know that at a certain point I'm going to get a break. Um, my vacation maybe is the weekend where I don't have to do any work for a little while or I get a break or I get to sleep in. Or maybe my vacation is tonight when I go home and I do all the stuff that I've got to do and then everybody, you know, by like midnight at least is in bed and then I'll take 10 minutes to hang out by myself and read. Maybe that's your hope and that's getting you through this time. That's your little vacation that comes at the end of a very long day. All of us live by hope of some sort, something we grab onto in the future to help us get through these trials right now. The people who are uh, who secular people, people who, who are not into the religious thing, who aren't into the God thing, I've been noticing that the hope animating is often around family. Like, what else do you have? It's all that you've got. It's the only relationships you don't really choose that you're just born into. You know, they're, they're your most fundamental relationships, whether they're positive or negative. And that's Sandra Bullock's hope in this movie. She's, I've got to get home for my daughter. I've got to get back for her. So the hope that draws her through various trials is this hope of a relationship back home. That's one of the strongest things that 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 kind of a story you know that that story writers can come up with now. That character creators that that people who say what is good and right in the world that has no God and has no ultimate future hope. That's one of the best goods that can be brought up is family. Which is a good thing. Family is good. But if your hope can be taken away by one car crash, then you've got to find something else. If your hope can be taken away by one big argument... Or the wrong, or, or 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 a marriage to someone, or you know, some way that it can just be severed. If that that tether can be severed that easily and instantly, then it's not a very good hope. It's not a very strong one. Religious people don't do a whole lot much, uh, a whole lot better. Martin Luther, the uh, instigator of the. 
Protestant Reformation hundreds of years ago said that the, um, that the default mode of the human heart is religion. When I say religion, what I mean and what he means is that uh, the default mode of the human heart is to make a deal with God. To say, I'll do my part and you do yours. And religious people uh, live by a hope based on doing their part and, and, uh, and God doing his. Religious people live for honor and praise and glory right now. This, this passage says that your living hope will, will result in honor, praise, and glory on the day when Jesus is revealed, when Jesus returns. But religious people want it right now. They want to, they want to live before other people and, and be, be, uh, get the credit for doing the good stuff. Maybe it's their church community or their neighborhood or their family. But religious people hold God hostage and say, I've done my part, now you do yours. Let me get let me get what I have coming to me. Would you like to test and see if you are religious? Let's say you're driving on 24 near the Ridge Cut. You're going home, you're going to a meeting, you're going somewhere important, and you're a little bit late. And for some reason, those tractor trailers come to a complete stop like before they go through the Ridge Cut. I still don't get it. It's not that bad. It's a little curve. But they do, and it's always backed up there. And then you're stuck in that traffic, and then somebody's coming on this on-ramp, and you got a decision to make. Here they come. I'm hardly moving. If I let them in, I will be exactly seven and a half seconds later to where I was going. If I do that, why don't I go ahead and do it? I'm going to let them in. I'm going to let that person in. And they merge on in there, blinker on. They merge in, blinker off. And then they did not wave. (laughs) You think you might have wanted a little bit of credit there? You think your hope in enduring the trial of seven and a half seconds later was a little bit of acknowledgement and gratitude? That's a pretty small hope. You're not going to live well after that one. Because the quality of our hope, the, 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 uh, the strength of our hope really determines the quality of our life. Quality of our hope determines the quality of our life. Here's another way to find out what your hope is. What do you plan for? What do you plan for? Are you always thinking about what's next? Are you, uh, are you planning for your kid's education? Are you planning to pay off your debt so that you can be free financially? Are you planning for what we're going to do to make our house a little bit better? Are you planning what you're going to do with your friends uh, when you're done work? Are you planning for that next toy you want to buy? You know, I can tell you what year it was for most of my adult life based on what I was planning for and scheming for. In 2008, I had to have a smartphone. Do you remember this? About that time. I mean, some people had them before that, but like, it got big. 2008, 2009. That's when it was like, I mean, I just kind of threw up my hands. I'm a pastor, for goodness sake. I got to have one of these things. You know, I I was scheming for it. All right, what do I need to do? I need to, you know, make sure I, I, uh, yeah, I think I called, I was on Sprint back then, and I got on my family's plan. I like took the, you know, the shameful, like, can I go on your family plan again? 
back to my family's plan so that I could afford this new phone. And then I called Sprint like a bunch of times and bugged them until they gave me this big credit that I could spend on a new phone. Like hours and hours. Ridiculous. That's scheming. That was planning. The next year, I had to have a flat screen TV because those were kind of new too. And my TV was entirely too small. It was like curved and stuff. The wrong way. The new ones are curved the other way. <laughs> wrong kind of curve. Got to get rid of it. Scheming on that thing. I kid you not, I woke up in the mornings thinking about what features I needed on this TV. The next year was making sure I had really fast internet. We're in 2011 now. Really fast internet to make sure I had the right modem. And I don't even know what those things are, but I had to get them. And then I had to you know, make sure I got the package upgraded and figured out some way to pay for it. And like, how do I, you know, can my kids really go barefooted all summer? And maybe I don't have to buy them shoes so we can do internet. They didn't really do that, just most of the summer. It goes on and on and on. Scheming. Planning. You know, it's really clear that my scheming, my planning, my ability to make it through these various trials is often determined by the comfort that I'll get, by the luxury, by the, the, um, the enjoyment, by the rest that I can achieve when I have like the entire world's quality entertainment streamed right onto my big TV. Nothing wrong with a big TV and phone and internet and all that stuff. But when that's my hope, well, that's my hope. I'm not living all that well in the moment, right? I'm not making it through those various trials very well when those hopes are getting blocked. So, we all live by hope. We are all animated by hope. But what is it? What is the content of our hope? Well, Peter says that, that this hope, this hope has a lot to do with this thing called the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And, and Eric talked a lot about this last week, so I won't spend much time on it. Resurrection, you cannot substitute resuscitation in there. This is an important point that I, uh, for years, had no, I just didn't get. I didn't know this. You can't, take, you can't say Jesus was resuscitated from the dead, therefore you have power in all kinds of various circumstances and trials. That doesn't work. See, lots of people have been resuscitated from the dead before. Jesus was resurrected. That's a very different thing. As, as, uh, as Eric said last week, it was, like the end, it, was, it was at the end of time, everybody was supposed to get resurrected. Everybody was at, at the end where all sorrows are done away with and everything comes to completion and, and everything's wonderful. And God returns to be king over all he's created That's when everybody's supposed to be resurrected. And then all of a sudden, in the middle of history, this dude gets resurrected. This end of the end of time, end of end this day of the Lord event happens right in the middle of history. That's resurrection. Resurrection means. Like Paul says about our inheritance, it can't perish, spoil, or fade. That is the, those are the same words that Paul uses about Jesus' resurrection body in 1 Corinthians 15. That Jesus has this body now that is not subject to the fall. That Jesus has this body that God has always meant for man to have. One that can't get sick. One that doesn't get old. One, uh, a body uh, that won't betray him. You know, when you get sick and there's just nothing you can do about it. That doesn't happen to Jesus 
He has a body that belongs to that day. And it happened right in the middle of history. It happened right in the middle of history. Do you know what this, is, what this means? It means Jesus DVR'd a football game for us. Have you ever had to, have, have you ever had to record a game? Like you're going to go out, Kathy's looking at me like, oh yeah. Uh, have you ever had to go out, like you had, you had some big plan, couldn't be broken, but your team is playing and you've got to see this game. And so you can record it. And you go out and the whole time you just, you don't want to look at your phone and somebody's, you, don't, you say, no, 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 stop, I haven't, I haven't watched the game. Don't talk to me about it. You try and cut off conversation. Nobody's talking to you by the end of the night because everybody knows you don't even want to speak to anybody. You just want to get home and, hear the, and, and watch the game. But then somehow, despite all your best planning, you hear this snatch of conversation where somebody recites the final score of that game and you're, you're, you're mad about it, right? You're mad. But then you go home and you say, this is my team. I'm going to watch it anyways. They won. I know they won. But I'm going to watch it anyways. How do you watch that game? What's your attitude like while you're watching that one? When there's a shift in momentum, and there's an interception, and there's, there's, a, there's a, a pick six interception that gets run back for a touchdown. There's a fumble. Or there's, there's a great pass. How are you watching that game? Anxiety doesn't really have to be part of the picture, does it? You know the end. You know what will happen with a certainty. You get to just, you get to enjoy it. You know what will happen on that day right now. So it changes the way you watch that game. When Jesus was resurrected right in the middle of history, we know what will happen on that day right now. We know the end of the game. We know the final score. Peter refers to this this, this kind of like uh, this living hope is the direction of this living hope is our inheritance. It can't spoil, perish, or fade. That word inheritance is used most often in Scripture in the Old Testament to, uh, to refer to, to, to the, the promised land, to God's land that he was giving to his people that would be flowing with milk and honey, that would be safe from all enemies, where God would reign among them as their king. Inheritance. He's saying, I'm going to bring you home. I'm going to bring you home. I'm going to take you home. You know the end of this. And at the end, you're going home. At the end of it all, you're going home. And this hope, this hope is like this tether. That keeps us, you know, Sandra Bullock had lost the tether, stunning into infinite space until death. But she keeps the the tether, the tether holds her, holds her secure and can take her home, finally. Now, if you have have a a tether that you're uncertain about, how do you interact with that? If you're not sure this thing is going to keep you tied to your spacecraft... Let's say. And you know, if this thing breaks, I'm out. I'm gone. There's nothing that can happen. There is no one to save me. There's no one to help. There's no power that can stop me from spinning on this trajectory out into empty space. Then you're going to have this 
clenched teeth, white knuckle grip on that tether. Can you think of anything in your life that you've got that kind of grip on? Can you think of anything that you were white knuckled about? Nothing better get in my way. When you're gripping like this, how are you to the people around you? How are you paying attention to them? Well, there are people who can either help you or hinder you in this project of holding tight. But if you have this living hope that Peter talks about, this hope that is a strong tether, it's a strong tether you can let go. You don't have to hold on so tight. You don't have to hold on to your little luxuries or your finances or your children's behavior or your future job prospects. You don't have to hold on to them anymore. You know where you're headed. You have hands free for service. Like Peter says, you've been saved for obedience to Jesus. And he says it in verse 13, ready your minds for action. The whole rest of the book talks a lot about obedience. He's talking about, that, uh, he's talking about what you can do when your hands aren't holding on. And you know the one thing that Peter never says uh, that obedience will get you? It'll never get you that security. It'll never get you the security of that tether. He never claims that. You know where that security comes from? He says that in foreknowledge, in God's foreknowledge, he knew ahead of time you. He knew you. You didn't do anything to do that. He says that he, in his, in his mercy, caused us, caused us to be born again, caused us to be born to a new life. Not what you have done. He caused you to be born. And in his mercy... His mercy, He gives to you a living hope. And this whole other guy, Jesus, who is not you, obeyed perfectly, died the death that you should have died, was resurrected and ascended to become the King of all things. Not you. Not up to you. That is the basis of this tether. And then He says... He will guard you with military might until the final day. Do you see that the tether has nothing to do with how firmly you're holding it? It doesn't have anything to do with that. You can let go of it. When I was in high school, there was this, uh, this rope swing into the Little Harpeth River, not too far from my house. And, I was, uh, and during the summers, I did landscaping with my friends. And every day after we were done slinging mulch and whatnot. We would go to that rope swing and try and, uh, and you know, we'd just go and play in the water. It's a swing over the river and you drop into the deep part and you just, it was just a ton of fun and a nasty river, by the way. It was really gross. But my cousin, my, my cousin Sarah Beth, who is a girl, come, came with us every time. And Sarah Beth, for some reason, just had, she was a soccer player. She ended up playing D1 soccer, awesome athlete, but could not hold on to that rope swing. She came almost every day 
only to face plant in that river again. You know, because right when the G's hit, that's when you... And she just flam right into the river. We tried everything. We tried some. Okay, no, hold on to this way. No, make sure your hands are real, real dry. Here's a dry towel. Dry them off. Okay, do it this way. And then and my one friend actually reverse duct tape the whole handle to see if she could really, so that would like keep her hands on there. And she just couldn't. I think it ripped all the skin off her. No, it didn't. It wasn't that bad. She couldn't hold on to the tether. She fell every time. Our tether is nothing like that. Our tether is much more like a harness when you go climbing, if you've been rock climbing. If you know that that thing is clipped in, you can scurry up that that, uh, cliff face or that wall if you're doing the indoor stuff. You can scurry on up there. You can take risks. You can jump from one to another. But if you're not sure about your harness or you're not sure about the belayer, you're going to be a lot more slow. You're not going to go nearly as high. I'm only going as high as I can jump down, probably. You're not going to take risks. You're not going to have a whole lot of fun. Our certainty, our certainty comes from God's actions, from Jesus' resurrection, and not from our own. And this meal that we're about to, um, to enjoy together, to partake together, we celebrate a tether moment. Do you know that? Because on the cross, on the cross, Jesus, Jesus refused to hold on. And he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Into your hands I commit myself. I'm not going to try and hold on. And in that moment, for the first time and the last time, Jesus met with silence. And not only silence, but a severed rope. And on the cross, Jesus went spinning out into the infinite void, untethered, unsavable. So that you and I would never have to. You know, that is the fate we deserve for being white knuckled about our little hopes. But Jesus took that for us. So that every time we turn and say, Into your hands I commit my spirit, he'll be there. And every time we try and grab on, the tether's still locked on, it's still there. It has nothing to do with your obedience. You just get to be free to obey. You get to be free to ready your mind for action and be sober-minded. You are free from holding on to those little hopes that give you such a little life. And then we celebrate that in this meal. I think it's astoundingly good news that this meal is called the Lord's Table. It's not called the Presbyterian Table. It's certainly not called Rock Creek Fellowship's table. This is a table, this is a meal 